Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books in Hindu Studies, which is part of the New Books Network, which has been created under the auspices of Amherst College Press. I am your host, Shandeep Saha, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Athabasca University, a research and distance learning university dedicated to breaking down barriers to learning by offering open and flexible educational options across the disciplines. For a range of courses and programs offered at Athabasca Universities, please check out www.athabascau.ca. Today, I am so happy and so thrilled to have Dr. Philip Lutendorf on the podcast. He's been undertaking a multi-volume and still ongoing translation of the Hindi devotional text, The Ramcharitmanas, written by the North Indian poet Tulsidas. The title of the translation is called The Epic of Rama and is part of the larger Murti, Classical Library of India series, published by Harvard University Press and distributed in India through Penguin Books. Currently, four volumes have been uh, published out of the projected seven-set translation. So, Philip, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Shandeep. Incidentally, incidentally, it's the epic of Ram, R-A-M, not Rama. <laughs> we're using the we're u- using the Hindi uh, the Hindi pronunciation. Okay. Thank you. I stand corrected, and I will um, remember that at the end of the podcast as well. So, um, for those of our audience who do not um, know about your work, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where you teach? what you teach, your areas of research uh, interest? Well, as a matter of fact, I just stopped teaching. That is to say, I retired uh, after 33 years of teaching. As of last summer, uh, I retired from the University of Iowa, but I have been teaching Hindi and courses in Indian literature, uh, religion, history, cinema uh, for the last 33 years since 1985 in the Department of Asian Languages and Literature at Iowa. Um, So um, my work has really focused on performance traditions, popular um, and folk, you could say, um, ranging from the performances of the classical epics, uh, the, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, uh, through to modern mass media, television, and, and cinema. Um, but my focus, of course, has been on Tulsidas and his great epic. Um, I did my dissertation research on that subject, um, looking at some of the ways in which the epic was brought to life for mass audiences in North India. And that became a book uh, published in 1991 called The Life of a Text, subtitled Performing the Ramcharitmanas of Tulsidas. Um, And that research in turn led me to interest in Hanuman and uh, Hanuman's popularity as a a deity in in popular Hinduism. And the fact that Hanuman was so little discussed in scholarship on Hinduism really interested me. And that led me to about 15 years of research, uh, including many trips to India and collection of a great deal of material, particularly in Hindi. Um, And that became the book called Hanuman's Tale, spelled spelled T-A-L-E, and subtitled The Messages of a Divine Monkey, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2007. Um, all through this time, I had also been writing on, uh, 
cinema and and other subjects. Most recently, I've gotten very interested in in tea. Um, yes, tea, T E A, <laughs> the beverage. Well, actual. Actually, chai, <laughs> uh, the the Indian uh, version of of tea, and I have published some articles, and I have plans to do a book uh, on chai, um, on how chai became the so-called national drink of India and its popularization. So I'm I'm interested in many aspects of of lived popular culture. Um, but in any case, um, I was approached uh, back in 2010 by the uh, general editors of the Murti, the new Murti series, um, and asked to do a new translation of the Manas. And that's what I've been, I'm sorry, the Ramcharit Manas, but people uh, often shorten the title to just Manas. Uh, and so that's what I've been working on since then. So, um, <clears throat> before we get into the Manas itself, tell us a little bit more about the uh, about the Murti Classical Library of India, because this is uh, a large series that encompasses so many um, diverse uh, texts. You know, what's the goal of the series, and how do you how did you come to be associated with the series? Well, uh, it is indeed potentially a very large series. Uh, that's the intention because it's modeled on something called the Loeb Classical Library, L-O-E-B, uh, which is also published by Harvard University Press and is devoted to the literature of Greek and Latin. And that series has been in existence since uh, 1905 and has more than 500 titles in print. Um, and they come out with about five volumes per year uh, because of due to an endowment, they're able to keep doing that steadily. Uh, and the books are all in identical format and size and very attractively uh, printed and bound and reasonably priced. And the, the idea of that, uh, of that series and the idea of the Morty series both uh, is to make this literature available to the widest possible audience. And particularly in the case of the Murti series, which was endowed by uh, Rohan Murti, the um, the son of uh, Narayan Murti, the founder of Infosys. Um, Rohan Murti's idea was that uh, so many young people, particularly in India, are, are growing up in English medium education they have very little exposure to the pre-modern classics of even their mother tongues, much less other Indian languages. And they get a smattering, perhaps, of English literature taught to them in school, often not very well. But they really don't uh, get a, a firm grounding in, in the, the wonderful literature that the subcontinent had produced. And, uh, you know, they end up to use to use the Hindi idiom, nagharka nagharka, you know, not not having uh, a firm footing in either cultural tradition. And uh, to make the, the, the cultural heritage more accessible to such people, particularly, uh, Rohan Murthy had this idea of endowing this series. Um, and... Uh, 
thanks to a very generous gift that he made to the Harvard University Press, it is set up very much like the Loeb series uh, with, a, with an endowment that generates income each year, which is then used to produce four or five volumes. And um, the series aims to um, uh, publish works in all languages, so-called classical as well as uh, so-called vernacular, um, from South Asia, from the subcontinent, um, written prior to 1800. 1800 has been set as the basically the cutoff date uh, for for what is regarded as pre-modern, and and the works have to have achieved a certain level of renown and popularity uh, to be accorded this this status of a classic. Those decisions are made by the senior editors. Um, but, uh, to date, I think, um, I think, I think when this year's books come out, I think there will be about 20 or more volumes, um, published. Uh, and as I say, there are many, many more in the pipeline and the intention is to keep publishing four or five each year. So is this supposed to, is it supposed to, I guess, be running parallel to the Harvard Oriental series, which I still think is impressed, right? Yeah, the Harvard Oriental series is a an academic um, project really aimed at scholars. And those works do not necessarily have to be well-known or um, uh, necessarily, you know, classics or popular. Um, and they're accompanied by very, very detailed scholarly apparatus in terms of notes and, and so forth. Um, the Morty series is, is intended somewhat differently. Um, footnotes are meant to be kept to a minimum. Uh, the introductions are supposed to be short. Um, the volumes themselves are really meant to be very... Um, uh, succinct and, and compact, something that people can easily carry around with them if they want. Um, there's a couple of them that have gotten very long, but they've, they've now kind of set a page limit on how, how big each book can get. Um, and if you've seen them, I mean, they're, they're very, very attractive. The print they're very is beautiful. beautifully put together. They, they are indeed. And to the extent of they've commissioned uh, special fonts for, oh, I, I should say that they are dual language. So uh, in each book, you have the original text on the left facing page and the English translation on the right. And that means particularly, again, for the Indian audience, you know, people who can read uh, Devanagari or Tamil or Kannada or any other uh, Indic script, um, maybe they don't, they don't understand the, the classical language completely, but they can at least um, decipher it and they can at least read it out loud and, and read along and perhaps understand some of it and then see what the translator is doing with it. Uh, from a translator's point of view, it, it makes one very exposed, of course. You, you have uh, the potential for a very close comparison of, of your work with the original text. 
But I think it's a wonderful idea, and it's also very beautiful uh, in terms of the way the books look. And I should have mentioned earlier <clears throat> that the Indian edition is subsidized out of the endowment. So the, the, volumes, the volumes are quite reasonably priced. Uh, I don't know exactly what they're going for now, but a couple of years ago, they were in the uh, 250 to 300 rupee range per book. Uh, which nowadays is is quite reasonable. So, um, you know, the Murti series contains um, a, a, a lot of devotional, uh, well-known devotional poets. We uh, Christopher Shackle has been uh, con- did his contribution on Bulisha. Our our dear uh, colleague Jack Hawley has contributed his uh, his uh, volumes on on Surdas to the to the series. So, my question is. Um, there's Sur, there's Mira, there's all sorts of Bhakti poets that have achieved so much fame in the in the popular sort of Indian cultural imagination. So uh, of all of them, why Tulsidas? Well, um, I, I expect that the Murti series will eventually include uh, many other Hindi Bhakti poets. Um, I don't know exactly what what is. Uh, in the pipeline at this point. But um, I know that uh, Sheldon Pollock, who is the senior editor, very much wanted uh, the Manas to be to be in there and to be in there early uh, because of its rather extraordinary presence and role in North and Central Indian culture, you know, throughout the so-called Hindi belt uh, and even somewhat beyond. Um, and this is something that I've written about in, in my book, uh, The Life of a Text. Um, the Manas has a kind of a scriptural status and a kind of a, a cultural epic weight for really hundreds of millions of people that is hard to equal. Um, there, there are not many texts that, that uh, have that kind of impact. And therefore, uh, Pollock wanted it to be in the series. Um, now, when, I should say when he approached me, um, I had never done any lengthy literary translation. I had, I had translated verses from the epic here and there in my writings about it. Uh, but I had not really tried uh, to do a sustained um, literary translation, except that I did Sundarakhand about 15 years ago. Um, and it was, it was uh, for Norton, for the Norton Anthology of World Masterpieces. And then it was printed in the, in the uh, Sahitya Academy Journal, uh, Indian Literature as well, and a couple of, couple of other, yeah, a couple of other places. And that was kind of an experiment. I was trying to do something rather different and, um, you could say outside of my box <laughs> on that particular uh, translation. I have since retranslated uh, Sundarkhand completely for the for the Morty series um, because the Morty series has very particular guidelines for translators uh, that I've been trying to adhere to. In any case, um, when I was asked to to do a new Manas translation. Um, the general guideline for a Murti series is that translations be into prose. And I really was not happy with that uh, for the Manas. Um, you may or may not know that there are nine published English translations, uh, of which 
Yeah, I was going to talk to you about those. Yeah, of, yeah. of which I am aware. Anyway, there may even be more. Uh, but there are certainly nine of them. And of those, seven are into prose. And I can't, don't like any of them. I, I've never wanted to give them to students. Uh, I find them extremely prosaic and wordy and turgid, uh, hard to read. Um, and, you know, th- this for a poem that essentially is sung usually, you know, um, so this would be a good time to to talk to tell our our readers or our listeners I should say and potential readers of your of your volume as well um, about the structure of the the manas itself because it it, it does follow usually a, a a pattern of quatrains and couplets up with different uh, diff- other various type of poetic meters and of course like you said they're meant to be they're really meant to be sung so um the older translations as you said um almost all of them that i've seen except for maybe a handful um from indian authors are all um in prose so let's talk about the structure uh the manner in which you wrote it and then uh dulce wrote the work and what what is what type of challenges is that going to pose for you if you're, you're if you're being asked to do it in prose form? Sure. Well, well, but I'm not. So I I put my I I put my foot down and I said no way. If you want a prose translation, there's a decent one that was done in the 1950s by W. D. P. Hill. And it's been it's been out of print for decades, and it's pretty accurate. And you can you know get the rights to it and reprint that. Uh, I was only interested in doing a a free verse uh, translation, um, and I'll tell you a little more in a bit about what I mean by that and my my approach um, to to doing it now there are by the way there are two of the nine translations are into rhyming english verse um but they are one by a westerner and one by an indian but um or an indo-american um but they are uh in my opinion particularly awful (laughs) um uh they they have the kind of jangling uh sort of bad Wordsworth quality of sort of Victorian greeting cards, you know, and, and because they have to come up with a rhyme for everything, they take tremendous liberties with the meaning of the text. Um, and that simply would not be acceptable to them, either the Morty series or to me. So, so anyway, I, but they, they accepted my, um, my suggestion that it be into Uh, free verse. And that's how I've been doing it. Um, Now, the Manus um, is written in a style that was popularized before Tulsidas's time for epic narratives. There, in fact, it goes quite far back into Jain uh, Apabramsha poetry. Really? I did not, um, I did not know yeah, that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Chopai and Doha, uh, uh, stanza form. So most of the manas, probably more than 90% of it consists of, um, st- what, what I call stanzas, um, uh, 
of a series of chopais for anywhere from four to sometimes 10 or 11, uh, followed by a, a little cu couplet or a doha. Uh, now, these are names of meters. Uh, chopais and dohas are, are two different meters. Um, chopai sounds like this. Akarachari lakachorasi jati jiva nabhajalatalavasi siya rama maya sabhajagajani karam pranama jordi jugapani. Okay, that is a chopai, uh, a full chopai, which, which consists of four feet, four. Um, uh, metrical units of 16 beats each, 16 mat matras, um, forming a complete chopai. It probably ultimately uh, evolved out of the Sanskrit shloka meter. Um, but um, that, that is sort of the, the, the bulk of the narrative. About 80% of the narrative is in Chopai. And then after each series of Chopais, you get a, a shorter Doha, um, which consists of two lines with a, um, a, a, a sejura or a pause in the middle of each line, roughly the middle. It's 11 beats and then 13 beats. Um, and they sound like, well, I'll... I'll I'll recite the most famous one. Yes, uh, I think our audience would like a, an example. Yeah, I'll recite probably the most famous Doha from the Manas, known to virtually all North Indian Hindus. Shri Guru Charana Saroja Raja Nijamana Mukuru Sudhari Barano Ragubara Bimbala Jasu Jodayaka Paluchari now that that happens to be the, uh, the first Doha of Ayodhya Khand in the Manas, but it's also the the opening verse of the Hanuman Chalisa, the very popular uh, praise poem to Hanuman that people recite. Um, but anyway, that is a Doha, and uh, you can see that it has an end rhyme on each line, and uh, it also you can hear the sejura in it. In any case, uh, this is poetry that was certainly meant to be chanted and is often even sung to musical accompaniment. And I've, of course, heard and written about many, many performances and many kinds of performances in my, in my earlier work. Um, so I was particularly reluctant to turn it into long, turgid paragraphs, which is what you get in most of the uh, prose translations. And I would say now I don't I don't try to get rhyme and I don't try to do much alliteration. Um, even though Tulsidas is very fond of alliteration. Um, and and it works in Tulsidas. It's a it's a it's a beautiful uh, effect which you find in a lot of pre-modern devotional poetry. Uh, but in English, um, particularly in English that is more or less meant to be silently read, uh, alliteration ends up sounding very artificial and forced. And I tried it. I tried it in my, my first uh, translation of Sundarkand for the Norton uh, series. And if you, if you go back and look at that, I, you'll see that I used a lot of alliteration in it. and. At the time, I kind of thought, 
I was very clever. Um, but reflecting on it and consulting with the uh, editors of the Murti series, I, I really came to see that it it doesn't work in English. And so I've toned that way down. Um, so so what is it that I try to do? Well, I try to keep my, my lines as short as possible. Um, you know, I'll translate uh, a half chopai, um, and then I go back and look at it carefully. Uh, uh, first of all, I chant it out loud in, in Hindi. Um, I do my translation. I chant it again. I go back. I look at the original. I look at my translation. I try to see what words uh, could be eliminated or could be shortened or substituted with something shorter to keep the line length succinct and brief. Um I, I, I think to myself uh, that I'm, I'm trying, what I'm trying to preserve is gutty. Uh, and uh, well, I, 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 gutty has many, many meanings, but, but right. what I'm thinking of, I, the, the word that I use uh, is momentum, uh, uh, pace, momentum. Right. I'm trying to keep the reader moving through the text and not getting bogged down, which is what I. Uh, but doesn't the text kind of work? Doesn't the text kind of work against you in that form? I remember reading the Manas, I think, for the first time when I was seventeen. And every time Tulsidas would say, "I'm about to begin the story of Ram, <laughs> Ram and Sita, or whatever," and then he launches into another discourse about the 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 importance of the name Rama or. You know, he, he, he's about to start and then he launches into something well, else and then he launches into something well, else. Well, you're, 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 how do you keep your, how do you keep your first time readers maybe to the text interested when the author in that sense is kind of working against you a little bit? Uh, well, I can't do anything about the content. Um, and you're correct, uh, that Balakand, which is Tulsidas's longest book, his first book, uh, roughly the first half of it is what I call the prologue. Um, and the story of Ram doesn't begin until the second half of Balkhand. And I had, I had the same experience the first time I read it in Hindi um, uh, with a teacher at the University of Chicago, Professor Kali Charan Bahal. Um, I kept saying to him, this is back in 1979, no, 80, 1980, we started reading it. And I kept saying to him, you know, when is the story going to begin? <laughs> and and, 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 and Das says, you know, I'm, now I'm going to narrate the story of, you know, the greatest of all uh, heroes of the Raghu line, right? But then, as you say, he digresses. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't do anything about that. But I'm not talking. I'm I'm not talking about the content. I'm talking about the way it's presented. And I want each I want each individual line to keep a certain gutty, a certain a certain pace, a certain momentum, and keep the reader moving forward. And of course, in that uh, half uh, half conned introduction. Many fascinating stories are told. That's where you get the story of uh, Shiva and Sati and uh, the story of um, um, uh, sh the marriage of Shiva and Parvati, which Tulsidas tells with great uh, flair and, and gusto. Uh, so there's lots of great stories uh, in there. It's not all theological 
uh, and metaphysical uh, meditation. So Although there is a um, certain amount of that. So just keeping a little bit on the on this topic of gati because it's sort of interesting because you've also talked about alliteration as well. So uh, you know, I, I'm assuming that you as a translator will get into a groove, I guess, for a bit, so to speak, right? X number of chapais followed by a doha, followed by a another set of chapais and another dohe. And then um, what does that do for you when, say, let's talk about Sundarkan and, and alliteration is the that wonderful description of Hanuman when he's surveying Lanka for the first time, you know, Kanaka Koti Vichitra Manikita Sundara, you know, that, that line. So you've got, you've got, mm-hmm. the, chopa, you got the Chopais and you've got the Sundara Doha and you're going into this flow and then boom, you've got... That's actually, that's actually another uh, meter, by the way, that you just quoted, which is the Chanda or that sometimes... Yes, Chanda, or it's called Harigitika Chand. It's a particular type of Chand, um, which is a lyrical quatrain. And uh, periodically, I would say they constitute maybe, oh, three to four percent. I mean, I'm just roughly guessing uh, or even less, maybe two percent of the of the total epic. But uh, Tulsidas introduces uh, them periodically, um, usually at moments of either very high emotion or moments when he wants to make some very important theological point or some kind of heightened description, as in the case of the one that you just uh, cited, which is Hanuman's first glimpse of the, the magical, fantastic city of the, of the Rakshasas, uh, the demons on Lanka. And you get this incredible uh, description of it that, that goes on through several chunts. In fact, it goes on so long that Tulsidas kind of apologizes for it at the end. Um, and I don't, I don't have it in front of me, neither the original nor my translation, but, you know, he says something to the effect of, you know, um, the only reason I've gone on at such great length about these guys, uh, these, these Rakshasas, is because they're going to all shed their bodies at the, at the Tirtha, at the, at the pilgrimage place of Rama's arrows, and they're going to attain salvation. You know, which is part of the uh, the devotional uh, dimension of the poem. All the all the demons that Ram kills uh, become, you know, and well, whatever happens, the various words are used. They attain nirvana. They they attain moksha. They they go to Ram's dham, Ram's uh, supreme abode. They get some sort of uh, exalted spiritual state. Uh, as a result of their their contact with Ram, even as enemies. So, uh, go ahead. Now, I'm sorry. I, I I know I digressed from whatever your no, question no, was I'm going. I'm really to be. enjoying myself. There's no there's, there's no reason because I'm <laughs> learning an enormous amount, and I'm sure our, our our listeners are as 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 well. Um, uh, just about the the chanda. Do you think, even though they constitute such a small percentage of the manas that in some ways because of their musicality they are the most well-known or jj suranayak those ones from the balkan for yeah. example yeah there, there's a there's a few that are very popular and that are sometimes uh, sung in temples as Arthas. part of arti ceremonies yeah 
Um, but those are just really very few. So, um, but yeah. they, yeah, they, 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 they lend themselves to musical uh, performance. And, and as in the one that you just cited, which is um, the, uh, the Chand, when Ram is born, you, you have um, internal rhyme, you know, within each line. Um, that makes it particularly uh, musical. So let's um, talk a little bit about the author himself. Now, I, I know this is sort of a loaded question because there's there's the the popular traditional view of who Tulsidas is that's been you know repeated in books and movies and plays and so on. Um, but like. Where does Dulcidas sort of who? What do we think we know about him from the little bits and pieces we get from his works? Like, what do you think we know reliably, uh, or semi-reliably about the quote-unquote historical Dulcidas? Yeah. Um, well, you know, like the historical Jesus, we actually know very little. Uh, <laughs> the historical versus the legendary, um, and. Um, what we can, the legend of Tulsidas probably began growing even during his lifetime because he achieved a considerable fame during his lifetime. We know that. Um, he says it in his poetry. Um, and other poets also mention this. Um, and, you know, the, the earliest, uh, hagiographical to use a scholarly term refers to sacred biography the earliest sacred biographies of tulsidas uh start coming out uh, in the in the early 1600s and then in the in the 1700s um uh, you know in the common era um so within a century of his death you get a, a legend that starts growing uh, about him and about certain incidents in his life and these are well known today people accept them and and believe them but there isn't any historical evidence for them there there isn't uh there aren't inscriptions there aren't direct uh historical accounts that can be taken at face value um but uh, the the general consensus among most scholars, although not necessarily devotees, uh, is that Tulsidas lived for about 80 years and probably between roughly 1543 and 1623. 1623 is the traditional date of his death. Um, he lived much of his life in Benares. Um, there is a house uh, in South Benares at Tulsigat, which is thought to be where he where he lived and thought to have been built for him by a wealthy landowner. Um, he was a sadhu of some sort, although whether what what precise kind of uh, order he was initiated into is not is not clear. Um, he's claimed, of course, by the Ramanandi Sampradaya. Um, but he does refer to himself as a sadhu and even as a gosai, uh, a goswami, a term that usually refers to someone who is in charge of a temple or mutt, uh, a, a uh, kind of monastery or monastic establishment where sadhus 
may sometimes stay. Um, and that comes in some of his late poetry. Um, he talks about his childhood and refers to having suffered a great deal as a child. Um, and he's, he, he mentions being abandoned by his parents. Um, it is thought that this, uh, well, there are traditional explanations that are given in the, in the uh, legendary biography for how this happened. But, but he may have been orphaned or he may have actually been uh, abandoned, given away by his parents and perhaps given to some sadhus. He, he speaks of having to beg for scraps of food from door to door and uh, experiencing terrible uh, want and deprivation. Uh, and then he talks of Hanuman and Ram uh, showing grace to him and sort of taking, uh, bringing him under their shelter. Um, and then he, he rededicates his life to Ram. Um, this much, you know, we, we know from the poetry. Um, there's also uh, hints in some of the later poems that he faced opposition particularly after he chose to create the, the epic uh, retelling of, of the Ramayana in, in popular language, in the Avadi dialect of, of uh, Hindi. And uh, this was regarded as uh, sinful by some Brahmin scholars who felt that the Ramayana should be in Sanskrit and should only be the preserve of the highly educated uh, who could then expound it to the common people, uh, but not actually translate it directly. Um, and so Tulsidas speaks of that, of being scorned and criticized. Um, and there are, in some of his late poetry, there are references to certain uh, incidents uh, of plague that broke out in Benares in the early 1600s, around 1613 or so. Uh, there are known to have been several incidents of plague, Mahamadi, Tulsidas talks about it. Um, so these, this much we can, we can gather from the poetry itself. So um, he, I mean, his, his work is, is large. Uh, what we have sort of as an official corpus. It's not that he's only written the Ramcharitmanas. So it might be um, good for listeners to know a little bit more about the the other works that he's he's written, and then you know within that corpus of work, where does the manas sort of a fit into that context? And B, you've alluded to the opposition that um, he may have or probably did encounter from some circles in Benares over over translating the Ramayan into um, into Avati. And so that leads to the question of why, because certainly for me, what was always striking about the text from all the numerous times that I've read it is that in, in some ways, it's so much like the, the Bhagavata Purana, the, the, the text that contains all the, the very popular, well-known stories about the the life of Krishna, uh, the Balkan birth story that we were talking about earlier, is so reminiscent of when uh, Krishna opens his mouth and shows you show that the entire um, universe, or Ram is t- telling Shauri and in uh, the Ramcharitmanas about the nine forms of bhakti, right? Which are a direct sort of 
directly inspired from the the Bhagavata Purana. And I, I think either it's in um, like, I this text that I think he talks about, you know, what's wrong with the current spiritual age? And and he, I think he's making sort of a brief allusion to to groups like Kabir Pantis who are using the name of Rama in a very different way and sort of displacing the 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 authority of Brahminical authority. And I'm assuming that's why at the beginning of the Manas, you know, he's talking about the word Rama in a sort of an all-encompassing sort of way that it can encompass both Rama as a deity and a source of formless being. And I think that's something you talk about in Life of a Text as well. So I've got a few questions that are going for you. Yeah, that you, once again, you've incorporated a lot of uh, <laughs> questions here. Um, let me just backtrack a little bit. You and I both have used the word translation in relation to the manas, and I, I, I don't want to let that stand because the manas is the manas is not a translation of the Valmiki Ramayana or any other Ramayana. It's a, it's an independent, very creative. Um, original retelling uh, of the Rama story, which is which is very much in keeping with the Ramayana tradition. It's what all of the regional uh, Rama texts uh, tend to do. And um, scholars often use the term Ram Katha um, to refer to the, the greater tradition, the greater uh, Rama story, uh, which exists in so many different uh, variants. So... Um, that said, uh, you're certainly correct to cite the Bhagavata Purana. Tulsidas was clearly a very learned uh, person. Uh, he must have been well-educated by the standards of the time. Uh, he certainly knew Sanskrit. Uh, he writes uh, Sanskrit Mangala Charanas at the beginning of each uh, khand of the Manas, and he also has some Sanskrit um, stutis, uh, praise poems, um, interjected at various points in the text. Um, he clearly was familiar with the Bhagavata Purana, which by that time had achieved a considerable renown in Vaishnava circles. And as you say, there are there are passages in the Manas that directly show uh, the influence of the Bhagavata. Um, another text that he obviously was familiar with is called the Adhyatma Ramayana, the, the metaphysical or spiritual Ramayana, which probably predates the Manas by a good century or more um, and uh, is put in the form of a dialogue between Shiva and Parvati as is much of the Manas. And there are many passages in the Manas that directly uh, reflect similar ones in the Adhyatma Ramayana uh, as well. So Tulsidas uh, clearly had influences, um, you know, texts that he considered to be important and that that affected his his own retelling of the story. But there's no uh, getting away from the fact that it's a highly original work. Uh, he he often speaks in his own voice, very boldly uh, and very assertively. Now you bring up the 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 criticism of the uh, the Sant tradition and the the Nirguna. Uh, bhakti tradition. Um, and that is indeed there. Um, Tulsidas really wants to have it both ways. You know, he, 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 he wants to have his, his uh, mitai, uh, you know, and eat it too, so to speak. Um, he, he, 
he regards Ram as the absolute god of gods, uh, the absolute transcendent uh, deity, and he's he's very um, definite about that throughout the poem. And all other deities, including Vishnu, by the way, uh, are sort of uh, minor manifestations or forms of Ram. Ram is the supreme deity, and and even more Sitaram, uh, this this sort of uh, androgynous uh, divine dyad, you know, the, the 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 feminine aspect as well as the masculine aspect of divinity. Now, it, it ultimately he boils it all down to the name, the divine name, Rama, the two the two aksharas, and um, he has a long discourse on this in Balkhand, uh, about nine stanzas uh, devoted to the glory of the name. And he makes the very audacious uh, statement that he considers the name to be even greater than Ram himself. Um, it's, he says it's greater than the absolute or Brahma, uh, but it's also greater than Ram, meaning the character in the Ramayana story. And then he goes into a long series of examples of this. Uh, you know, uh, Ram liberated one fallen woman, thinking of Ahalya, uh, whereas his name liberates millions, right? That, that kind of thing. He goes through a whole series of, of comparisons. Um, so, you know, it, among uh, the sons, and particularly in the poetry of Kabir, which would have been extremely popular in uh, Benares and in that region at the time of uh, Tulsi's life, uh, because Kabir predates Tulsi Das by about a half century or, or perhaps more. Um, so it, in the poetry of the sons, uh, Ram is also often praised. Uh, the name of Ram is praised as a, as a mantra. Um, but it's explicitly said that this is not uh, the Vaishnava hero of the Ramayana. This is not this mythological character. It's not this prince. Um, and Tulsidas is very uncomfortable with that. Uh, he, he, he wants to refute that. He wants, he wants the name to be the ultimate, um, not even symbol, the ultimate embodiment of godhood. But he also wants it to be the beautiful, handsome, heroic, just, merciful, loving king of Ayodhya with all of his attributes, uh, all of his physical attributes and all of his moral attributes and all of the stories that are connected with him. He wants all that to be there. And this is, this is a constant theme throughout the epic, this kind of back and forth between the, the, the transcendent, the inexpressible, um, the, the formless, uh, divine and the divinity in form. And, and Tulsidas keeps insisting that they are not different. They are one and the same. Saguna, Saguna and Nirguna uh, are both there in Ram. And he kind of wants to make sure this appeals to all, as, as many parts of society as, as, as possible, because it, it seems that he's trying to, you know, uphold Brahminical orthodoxy 
while at the same time trying to emphasize that bhakti is sort of a universal thing for uh, uh, Ram Bhakti is universal. It can offer everyone salvation, whether it's it's Brahmins or demons or um, uh, and I'm using this as my segue to talk about Kakbushundi and <laughs> Garuda, right? Because they're they're two interesting characters who pop up rather abruptly towards the end of the of the entire Ramacharya Manas. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about them, because here we have a crow and Vishnu's mount, his bird, his eagle, talking about 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 bhakti and kind of popping into the narrative towards the end. And Gakpashundi, of course, being a, a crow is, you know, symbolically sort of the lowest of the low because they feed on 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 flesh. Yes, the, the chandal among birds, the untouchable among birds, uh, they're sometimes called. Indeed. Um, well, I, I would agree with what you just said about Tulsi wanting to reach the, the widest possible audience. And I think anybody who reads uh, that prologue, which in, in my translation is volume one, uh, because Balkand is so long that the Murti series had to break it into two volumes uh, using using their format. Um, so the first volume is really that what I call the prologue to the Manas. And if you read that, uh, you, you'll I, I, I don't see how you can avoid the feeling that this guy definitely has a message oh, he wants to get across <laughs> he's he is uh, you know he is standing there on a soapbox as we would say in in american english um and he you know he wants to reach people and and get this message of ram bhakti across and and his message as you say is that in this uh, degraded age in which we live the kali yuga um, this this dismal age of discord and disharmony and immorality, um, and I certainly wouldn't dispute that. Uh, um, the the name of God is the surest route to salvation, and Tulsidas fervently believes that, and he believes that it's for everyone, and he includes all sorts of people, including uh, you know Yavanas, which which uh, originally meant Greeks, but by Tulsidas's time essentially meant Muslims, but, but people from the West, so me <laughs> uh, as well, you know, everyone uh, can be saved uh, by, the, by the power of Ram's name. And in that sense, you know, he's very egalitarian and he's very open. But as you pointed out, he also is very concerned with preserving what he sees as some of the the good features of sort of high Brahminical Sanskritic culture. Um, and he, he's very reluctant to throw them away um, and often defends them, you know, almost in the same breath as he's advocating a kind of uh, devotional egalitarianism, which makes for some kind of jarring uh, juxtapositions. Um, and Busundi is a good example. Now, now I should say um, that the Manas is uh, has a remarkable structure um, in the in the form of uh, what you could call, yeah, what you could call a kind of postmodern um, narrative structure. I mean, you it sort of makes you think of some somebody a storyteller like Salman Rushdie or something, uh, uh, or or James Joyce. Uh, you know, I mean, he. It's not a um, 
straight line linear narrative by any means. Um, and and in the in the opening section, he sets up this series of frames in which you have four different narrators uh, telling simultaneously telling the story to four different listeners or sets of listeners. Um, and each narrator, traditionally, um, traditional commentators on the Manas, so the Ramayanis or Manases, um, they they think of each narrator as having a particular darshana, a particular uh, philosophical perspective or point of view on the story. Um, and uh, Kakabusundi, the, the crow, um, is uh, thought to embody the bhakti perspective, the, the, the prema, the, the love, devotional, devotional love perspective uh, on the story. And he comes in in the second half of Uttarkhand, the last book, um, after the Rama narrative has concluded. Um, and as you say, but he's, he's there earlier. He, periodically, there are little um, asides that he makes uh, to his listener, who is uh, Garuda, uh, Vishnu's eagle, um, but he he becomes the main narrator of the second half of Uttarakhand, and uh, indeed he is a crow. He's an immortal being who has taken the form of a crow as a result of a curse, and he has accepted this curse very happily, and he's quite happy being a crow. And he sits on top of a, a magical mountain in the Himalayas the Blue Mountain, and he constantly tells the Ramkatha to an audience of birds. It's a, it's a wonderful, charming image. Um, and uh, Garuda is sent to him by Shiva and others uh, to clear up a doubt that he has about Ram. And uh, he ends up hearing the entire story from Kakabusundi, who then uh, goes on to give this long discourse about uh, it tells his own life story and also gives this long discourse about the power of bhakti and the power of the name uh, to save souls in the in the Kali Yuga. So, um, just uh, really um, briefly, um, two final things for you. Um, first one uh, about the view Tulsidas's Ramayan sort of, like you said, it's 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 inspired by Valmiki's narrative, but. Tulsi has definitely put his own stamp on it and his own voice into the narrative. And in order to make Rama sort of this universal sort of powerful Saguna slash Nirguna uh, figure, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, does that influence some of the choices that he makes uh, when he's kind of uh, fashioning his narrative? For example, um, uh, the question I'm thinking about is at the very end, uh, Sita is not exiled into the forest at the end of the Manas uh, in the way that uh, happens in, in Valmiki and other versions of the Ramayan. Everyone, uh, it ends on a happy on a happy note, Sita, Ram, the two children, Love and Gush, and that's sort of, that's it. You know, it I, I'm assuming that he's making a conscious editorial choice there for his theological vision. Yes, it, 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 it ends with the uh, triumphant and utopian vision of Ramraj, which, of course, has become a very powerful uh, term and even slogan uh, in Indian life and, and in politics as well uh, in modern times. But um, 
Tulsidas clearly knew the Uttarakhanda story from Valmiki of Sita's exile. He refers to it. He mentions it very briefly in Balkhand, um, but he doesn't choose to tell it. And I think he he I think that's a very deliberate choice. I don't think he could bear to tell it. Uh, it, it it was disturbing to him. Um, it was not the kind of note that he wanted to end on. Um, so yes, he makes many choices like that. Um, Rama's divinity is always foremost in the manas. It's, it's constantly emphasized. Um, this is not the case in Valmiki, as you know, or in the Mahabharata, the, the heroes are divine. They're avatars of various gods, but their divinity is often kind of in the background, um, and their their humanity and their human action is is emphasized uh, in much of the narrative. Um, but that's not the case in Tulsidas. Um, whenever Ram does anything that involves the slightest um, uh, seeming, well, even emotion or certainly indecision or anything that would might be questioned, Tulsidas immediately reminds you, of course. He is just playing. This is just, this is Leela. This is his human, um, you know, Manuja Anusara, behaving like a person, a, a human being, a man. Um, and this is not, uh, you know, really uh, something that, that, that uh, affects Ram's reality, his inherent yeah, being. Yeah, um, because I always think of the uh, the scenes where uh, Sita is, uh, where, uh, where Ram is, for example, weeping over Lakshma, who uh, who has been wounded on the battlefield, or losing Sita, um, and, and uh, uh, he's looking through the forest. And there you get these profound, very moving descriptions of, of, uh, Rama's grief and that he's he's crying he's crying over his brother's body while Hanuman is trying to save him uh, is off trying to save Lakshman and in the middle now just remember folks uh Rama's just doing this for our benefit as human beings uh he's really God just <laughs> keep that in mind this is all part of the divine this is all part of the divine sport that that he's engaging in for for our benefit is is sort of that editorial voice that keeps being um, put in there to remind his to, to remind his listeners. I, I wouldn't say readers of his text. Um, say. So my last question is, uh, and I'm going to put you. I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. Um, do you have a favorite couple of lines you'd like to recite for us before you go? Oh gosh, um, there are so many. Because you did such a beautiful job <laughs> reciting uh, the, the other verses that I, I think. I certainly would, and I think our listeners would maybe like to hear maybe what are your couple of verses before we end. Well, there are so many that I love um, and that I often think of, but I'm going to give you one Chopai that um, is very important because it, it is spoken by Ram himself, and it is, is part of the teachings that he imparts to his brothers uh, at the end. Uh, in Uttarakhand, in uh, after he's back in Ayodhya and reigning as as king, and so it's a kind of a, an upadesha teaching that that Ram is giving out, and uh, this one verse uh, particularly stands out for me. 
पर हित सरस धर्म नहीं भाई पर पीड़ा सम नहीं अधमाई uh and i would translate that uh again i don't have my my i recently finished a first draft of utrakhan but i don't have it open in front of me here but um parahita sarasa dharma nahi bhai there is no there is no dharma no righteousness no religion no religious path uh equal to doing the the good of others affecting the good of others parahita um and there is no uh, vileness or baseness no lowness adhamai um equal to causing pain to others um that is very similar to the so-called golden rule that you find in in many uh, other religious traditions and it is certainly something that i wish that uh more people today lived by um uh, adhered to in their daily lives it's a it's a great upadesh that we could all take from the manas so on that note philip thank you so much for being on the new books in hindu studies podcast i tulsidas has been my favorite poet and really my the reason i got into bhakti studies in the first place and i remember reading your book when i was an undergrad so uh i am so thrilled that i could be able to talk to you today well thank you very much shandeep so um we were talking uh good listeners to Philip Lindorf who uh has been translating Tusidas's Ramcharitmanas uh, under the title The Epic of Ram got that right this time which is part of the Murthy Classical Literature of India series published by Harvard University Press uh and distributed in India by Penguin um it's a seven volume translation of which uh four are in press so uh four are out i have the four, first three four um, are published for published sorry for published i have the first three in my collection like in the test of how wonderful they are and how great the murthy series in general is so thank you for joining me listeners on the new book in hindu studies podcast the podcast is part of the new books network brought to you by amherst college press if you'd like to know more about the new books network and the range of podcasts that the network offers please visit www.newbooksnetwork.com and please subscribe to the network on iTunes, Stitcher or whatever app you use to listen to your favorite podcasts i'm your host shandeep saha Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Athabasca University. To learn more about why Athabasca U has been the world leader in open education, visit www.athabascau.ca. So thank you again for listening to the podcast and for sharing part of uh, your day with us.